The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Messages of Hello, everybody. This is Suzanne Giesman coming to you from my home in Florida for once. I'm so excited about today. I don't want to do a lot of talking right up front because my guest, Paula Stevens, has so much to share with all of us about rebuilding a beautiful, thriving life after tragedy. But let's just set the stage for the fact that death is not the end. Of course, this show is called Messages of Hope, and I'm trying to do my best to instill in all of you the hope that that love and life are eternal, and that hope then turns into knowing that just transforms our life. A quick story from a reading I did yesterday for a client. Oh, is her life turned around in that brief period of time that I showed her that her son is still very much with her. At the end of the reading, he flashed in my mind's eye the peace sign, not the kind with the fingers, but the peace symbol. And I explained that to her, and she didn't know what it meant, but we had just finished talking about her daughter and I said, well, just remember that peace sign came up and let me know if if you figure out the meaning of it. So she went home and just a few hours later, I got an email for, from her with this photograph. When she walked in the door, there was her daughter with these giant peace sign earrings on. I just love those those not telepathy moments that shows that I wasn't reading her mind. She didn't even know about it, but her son on the other side sure did. So just a beautiful wink from across the veil. Well, Paula Stevens, our guest today, also has a son across the veil. She is a gold star mom, which means that her son passed while on active duty, just like our Susan. And let me tell you a little bit about Paula before we bring her in. The death of her father as a teenager exposed Paula to a rudimentary education of what it feels like to grieve the loss of a loved one. But it was the unexpected death of her son while home on leave from the Army in October of 2010 that shattered her life into pieces she thought she could never rebuild. And I know that so many of you, my friends, know what that feels like. So you are going to get so many tools from our show today. Well, on the five-year anniversary of her son Brandon's death, while at a yoga ashram in the Colorado Rocky Mountains, Paula reflected on the elements that allowed her to rebuild her broken heart. And from that moment, her book, From Grief to Growth, was born. 
Paula has become a nationally known speaker, a yogi, and a blogger on the topic of grief, especially the difficult topic of child loss. Her blog, which is titled What I Wish Other People Understood About Losing a Child, has over 1.3 million views and continues to be a comfort and inspiration to parents around the world. So I know today... Paul is going to be an inspiration to all of us, regardless of who we have on the other side. Welcome to the show, Paula. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I have really had the pleasure of reading your book, From Grief to Growth. The subtitle is just great. Five Essential Elements of Action to Give Grief Purpose and Grow from Your Experience. I think the best way to start the program is just tell us, about Brandon and his passing and how it affected you. That is a great place to start um, because who doesn't love to talk about their kids, right? Exactly. Um, Yeah. So um, my son, Brandon, um, he passed away when he was 21. And um, I'll kind of get into the details around that uh, here in just a second. But Brandon was the oldest of my, of all my boys. And um, I'm a mom of four boys. And Brandon was the oldest, and he always took such pride in being, you know, the older brother and the big brother. And you know, I think that's a an element that continues on after his death. That, that even just recently, one of his younger brothers, who's now 25, was sharing that he had a dream about Brandon or a dream with Brandon in it. And he said, you know, the best part of the dream was that Brandon continued to sort of cajole him like he did in, you know, in in real life, if you will, and that he still had this essence of teasing his little brother. And he said, Jason said, it just felt right. And it felt the way things were supposed to be. And that was sort of the essence of Brandon was that he always had this beautiful essence, this childlike essence about him. And um, it just really resonated of this great big heart. Um, we used to say that he had a Kool-Aid grin, you know, remember the, the Mr. Kool-Aid that Oh, back sure. in the day when there used to be TV commercials and we had the big guys. <laughs> and we used to always say Brandon had the Kool-Aid grin. And, um, but then, you know, when he was, you know, out of high school and right out of high school, he kind of struggled with what he wanted to do, um, thinking that, you know, we so often kind of lead our children down the path of, you know, from high school you go to college. And um, he didn't really feel like that was the right path for him. And he had always wanted to be in the army. And as a little kid, he just played army you know, hours on hours and in the open fields, it would be a whole battlefield for him and, mm-hmm. you know, imagining all the pieces and players. And, um, and so finally he decided that that was his calling and that he did want to join the army. And so he enlisted and um, much to my chagrin, he enlisted as an infantryman. Mm. And of course I was like, Oh, would you be something safe? Like why that? And, um, that is such really, a typical um, mom response. I hear it all the right. time. <laughs> right. Let's just, can you do something safe in the army? And, um, but he was so proud of his decision and really flourished. I mean, absolutely. As soon as he made that decision, he just completely changed um, into this amazing young man, which he always was, but it was as if he settled into his own purpose and his own being. But what's really interesting is as soon as he left for boot camp, and my husband and I remember this conversation so clearly, I said to my husband, I don't know that we'll ever get Brandon back. 
Mm. And I think this might be sort of the end of it. And, you know, my, and my husband at the time, you know, he kind of looked at me like, well, that's kind of a morbid thing to say. But I think there was this inner knowing and this, this sort of bracing of the inside of me, um, the wise part of me that knew something was coming. And it wasn't necessarily that I knew that I, or that I thought he was going to die, you know, killed in action or, or something like that. But I had a knowing about it. And I went down and visited Brandon about a month before he died. Um, and I went down to Fort Benning in Georgia and we spent this weekend together and it was absolutely wonderful. It's one of my favorite memories of our time together. And again, I had this sort of inner wisdom that was this like nagging thing. Um, but I couldn't, I mean, I would never have been able to articulate what it meant at that point in time. And then about a month later, Brandon came home um, for a weekend of leave and we, um, dropped him off at his dad's house um, about 10 o'clock at night and he was going to go out with his stepbrother and his stepbrother was about the same age and so they were both 21, 22 years old and um, <clears throat> you know, just a typical, I haven't been home in months you know, let's go out and have a have a good time kind of thing and that was the last time I saw Brandon mm-hmm. and the next day we got a phone call that said he had died in his sleep and, you know, just nothing could have been further beyond my imagination of more stunning. how that yeah. was going to unfold, you know. And, um, you know, we found um, through talking to the people he was with that night and then um, the coroner's investigation and all of that, that he had um, someone who was at the stepbrother's apartment had broken in half a painkiller um, and given half of it to Brandon and Brandon took it. <clears throat> and apparently this painkiller, um, one, it's not a one, it wasn't prescribed to Brandon. So he, you know, in full disclosure, he should not have taken it. Um, and it was also a painkiller that is not on the streets. It's not just a everyday painkiller. Apparently <clears throat> this was, um, a painkiller that is highly regulated and really had no place to be on the street. And it was a very dangerous drug. And in taking it, in taking half of it, um, it was an extended release tablet. And when he broke it in half, um, one of the things that happens chemically with medications that are extended release is if you break them or crush them or uh, manipulate their chemical bonds in any way, it disrupts that extended release. And in this case, Half of the pill <clears throat> dumped into Brandon's system, and instead of being, you know, eight hours or whatever, it became a full dose in a very short period of time that became for Brandon lethal. And so, you know, his the friends he was with said, you know, he didn't even drink a beer. He fell asleep on the couch, and we just thought, long day of travel. You know, he was still in his army uniform, um, you know, and they just let him sleep on the couch. And sometime during the night, he died. And, um, you know, so there's, there's a, certainly an element for me of compassion and forgiveness in that for the people who were there, um, which, you know, we, maybe we can dive into that. We'll see. And, um, but so that was, you know, that's kind of how Brandon went. And 
as I said, there was an inner knowing. There was this sense that we all knew Brandon wasn't a long-term contract. And I can even point to times, you know, way back in the history of being a mom where that tickle was in the back of my mind. And maybe not necessarily for Brandon, but just knowing that something was going to be different. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's it's not easy, but you know that that knowing somehow what that points to to me is the fact that we are souls because it's the soul that knows that, and that points to a greater existence and the fact that Brandon is still here and we're connecting at a soul level. And we may get into that later because I know that you've had interactions with him, but. For today, you've become an expert on grief. I love your action-oriented focus. If you uh, allow me to, to kind of guide this conversation to what I found most fascinating about your book, which, by the way, I love. I'll talk a little bit more about that from grief to growth, about what I loved about your book. But one of the first things that caught me is how you, you talk about the changing nature of grief, referring to grief like the stages of life. At first, it's like a toddler in your life and then a teenager. And why don't you tell us what you mean by that? (laughs) Yes. Well, um, so, yeah, I, I think that we, it's so hard for us to wrap our arms around what grief is. And, you know, very simply, it's an emotion, it's a feeling, it's an expression of love. Um, but my, express, my experience of grief has been that it has its own personality and it has its own presence. And just like how we come into this world as infants, that's how our grief arrives. Our grief arrives as needing care 24 hours a day. And if we look back, you know, if you've ever been a parent or you've ever babysat or you've ever had any experience with small, you know, infants, you know that you know, just like those early weeks of grief and sometimes early months of grief, it's all consuming. And it feels to me very much like an infant where it was, you know, every two hours you're waking up to feed and, and then they need something and then they have to have their diaper changed. And, and none of it is pleasant. No one likes to change poop and feed a baby every two hours and wake up. Like, it's just nothing. I mean, I don't know how any of us don't eat our young sometimes. It's, it's a little bit like grief that we just sit there and go, are you kidding me? This is my life. I thought this was mm. going to be something else. But then, you know, it starts to transform and grief becomes this thing that starts to take on its own personality, just like a toddler would. And it starts to be a little bit, you know, back talky and sassy and, and say things like, you can't go out for happy hour. You're not happy. Stay home. And, you know, or no, I'm not going to that. Just like the toddler would like put his foot down and say no. And, and you go, okay, because you don't know grief. It's not a relationship for you yet. And so you think, well, grief said this. And so grief must be right because it's, it's the biggest personality in the room right now. It's the biggest thing happening. So it must be right. And so you go, okay, we'll stay home. And then, you know, grief continues to sort of evolve and, and open up and it becomes again, its own thing. And, and then it becomes the rebellious teenager. And, and for some of us, that rebellion, you know, I think a, a good example of a rebellious teenage grief is um, I'll use uh, the woman who developed Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So this was a woman who lost a child 
And in her grief, her grief became this really rebellious, angry teenager. Um, And the expression of that was, no more children are going to die at the hands of a drunk driver. And so this was, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving was created back in the 80s, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And before that time, there really wasn't regulation around drunk driving and certainly not the way we understand it today. Um, But her angry teenage grief really went to town. You know, it it really created something amazing. And the goal, I think, in our grief is to sit across from it and say, what can I learn from you? And let me create a really healthy relationship with you. Just like the relationship we had with our kids and we continue to have with our children, you know, it changes. I don't have the same relationship with Brandon that I did 10 years ago. 10 years ago, he was alive. 10 years ago, he was 19 and he was rebellious and he was kind of a pain in my butt. But now I have a different relationship with him. And we can no more expect our relationship to grief to stay stagnant and the same than we can expect our relationships with human to human interaction for them not to change either. So, you know, if I think that the hus- my relationship with my husband will never change, it's eventually going to become dysfunctional. If I continue to expect him to treat me the way he treated me when we first started dating, <laughs> that's ridiculous. He's not going to act like that anymore. And nor am I for that matter. And so, you know, as I write about in the book, we have to get to know our grief. We have to personify it. And sometimes it helps us to look at it and say, okay, you know, how old are you? You know, and not in age as in like it's been eight years since I lost Brandon. I'm not saying age it out in the same way that we age it in our human lives and in our our human experience. But, you know, some, some grief is old and grumpy and doesn't want to leave the house, you know, and, and other days it's, it's more, you know, it's middle age, it's at ease, it's, it's kind and it's, you know, service-based and uh, maybe it's an empty nester where it has some space to give back to society. There's so many ways that we need to get to know it. It's part of who we are and it's the way that our relationship with it is the way that we encounter grief is the way we embody grief and, and that's sort of, oh, go ahead. Yeah, you know, this is just, I just find your outlook so refreshing and, and actually stunningly new from what I've heard from others who deal with grief. First of all, I love that you outright claim you have an ongoing relationship with Brandon, which is what I encourage everybody to have with their loved ones who have passed because they're not gone. But what I'm also hearing you say is that this is your your action steps are not about getting rid of grief. You're not telling us it's going to go away completely. You're saying have a relationship with it, but expect it to change. And you're saying that, well, what are you saying? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's not going to go <laughs> well, away is think, what you're saying, though. Yes, I'm saying absolutely don't expect it to go away. And don't, ex- don't buy into the time heals all wounds. That is one of the biggest farces out there. Action is what heals our wounds. And so mm-hmm. leaning in, taking action, and, and not, I guess the other thing about um, appreciating our grief as something that evolves and changes over time, it gives us permission to have, so for example, let's say a birthday of a child or a loved one that's gone, and let's say it's a really tough birthday, and we don't mm-hmm. deal with it well, and it's it's heavy and it's difficult and it brings up a lot of memories. 
knowing and believing and understanding that that experience is impermanent and that our grief will change, will, will change over time, allows us permission to say, okay, that was this year's experience of grief. Next year doesn't have to be like that. Next week doesn't have to be like that. It's going to change. And that also is to say that when we have maybe an anniversary or a birthday that comes and it comes and goes really easily and we say, oh gosh, I've never felt so at ease with, you know, holding space for that time. And either we beat ourselves up because we think, oh gosh, now I'm a terrible person because I didn't grieve and I didn't, you know, no, gosh, that's just how it was for me this year. That's, That's how grief showed up. And, you know, it's a little bit like, again, like a marriage where sometimes on your anniversary you go big guns and you go out for a big meal and sometimes you just, you know, give each other a card and say, I love you. And sometimes it's an all out battle and a fight. <laughs> you say, I can't believe I'm still doing this with you. But it gives us permission to look at our grief and say, oh, I see you. This is you right now. Okay. Well, next time you show up, you'll be different because it will be. I love that. And you're, you're making me smile because just yesterday, um, my dear friend Irene Vuvalides, who many of our listeners know through my book, Still Right Here, uh, she's now the vice president of Helping Parents Heal, organization for dealing with the death of a child. Her daughter Carly, who is on the other side, celebrated her 30, 30th birthday yesterday. And Irene was doing exactly what you're saying, celebrating it in a way that she never could have imagined possible years ago. They had a birthday party for Carly with with guests and a full meal and cake and candles and sang to Carly. And she, you know, this is a woman that that didn't want to live after Carly passed. Mm -hmm. So her grief is transforming and it's still very much there. But she took action, like you said. Yes, yes. So let me just, uh, we have five minutes before the break, and I want to promise everybody that when we come back after the break, I'm going to ask Paula to share some of these action steps, since you said action is what heals our wounds. But your blog, your website is called Crazy Good Grief, crazygoodgrief.com, I believe, right? Yes. 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 Why do you call it that? (laughs) Um. Well, I I guess the simple answer is, you know, for years, somebody would say, well, how are you? And I would say, I'm crazy good. You know, like, I'm just, I'm great. Like, I'm really just crazy good. And um, it seemed so counterintuitive then after Brandon died and someone would say, how are you? And I wanted to be like, I'm crazy with grief, you know, which traditionally my answer would be, hey, I'm crazy good. This is awesome. Um, and so it was kind of this play on something that's not good, um, and th- I'm working through it. It's a work in progress, and it's crazy. Grief is crazy. It's a emotional roller coaster on its best day, and it can be good. And so it's all those things. It's crazy. It's good. It's grief. That's what I love about your book. First of all, you're very funny (laughs) and you're a wonderful storyteller. Guys, her book is fantastic. You have to read it from grief to growth. And 
it's so full of anecdotes that show your humanity. And I have to tell you, I recognize myself in some of your stories after our Susan died, and I know so many readers will. You, we really do go a little crazy. I mean, the thoughts that go mm. through our heads, they're, they're, they're insane. Any doctor would say that's crazy behavior. And yet, at the same time, you say that's okay. I mean, it's all part of the process. You, we have just a couple minutes. You want to talk about that craziness? Oh, I had so much crazy. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things I share in the book is um, anger was really present for me for a long time. And, you know, the craziness of, of just how anger can absolutely burn you. And, and we think that in our anger, we're burning other people and somehow it's, we're justified in that behavior. And, and I think what I talk about in the book is on my way to work, I would stop by the Starbucks and, you know, the Starbucks baristas are trained to be like, hey, how are you? What's, what's going on this weekend? You know, and, and I would just go in and, and I would fire off just the, the meanest things to those poor people. And mm. I think it really got to the point where I would, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that like whoever was like low man on the totem pole had to be that person. It was kind of like a rite of initiation at that Starbucks. Like here comes the crazy lady and she's going to yeah. tell you off for asking how her day was. But if you don't ask her how the day is, the manager's going to be mad. So go for it. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of crazy um, in, in our experience of grief. And that's part of the experience. It's part of the human experience. Yeah, that's that just speaks right to uh, my assistant Lynette and I were dealing with this yesterday that hurt people lash out, hurt people, hurt people. And we sometimes just have to take a breath and say, we don't know what they're dealing with. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which uh, maybe when we come back, I can talk to a really beautiful exchange of emails that I had with a woman who was a hurt person, hurting people, and it's sort of blossomed into this really beautiful exchange. And so maybe that's a good story to, to talk about okay. too. When we I'm going to make a note break. about that. Okay. Yeah. So we yeah. have just one minute till the break. I just want to tell people we're talking with Paula Stevens, a grief expert, unfortunately, after the passing of her son, Brandon. Uh, you're also a fitness expert. So when we come back, we're going to talk about, which I believe this is the first of your five action steps. So everybody, don't go run and hide and say, oh, my God, she's going to make me exercise. But truly, she's going to give you some information on why just getting out and getting fresh air and moving your body physiologically will help to lift your grief. And you have five actual steps. That's the subtitle of your book, Five Essential Elements of Action. So I don't want to give away too much before the break, but I hope everybody will come back and join us. Her website is crazygoodgrief.com, and the book is From Grief to Growth, Five Essential Elements of Action to Give Grief Purpose and Grow from Your Experience. So come back after the break. We're talking with Paula Stevens. the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. 
You're listening to Unity Online Radio. This programming is made possible through the generous donations of listeners like you. If you feel inspired by this programming, we invite you to contribute. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate to make your offering today. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. I heard from a young lady who was just starting out as a Unity minister, and she said, I am not teaching prosperity yet in my ministry because I have not yet demonstrated it in my own life. And I don't think I should teach what I have not demonstrated. And I wrote her back and said, Honey, you've got it all backwards. You need to teach what you want to learn. You teach what you want to demonstrate because you cannot demonstrate what you do not know. There must be an inworking before there can be an outworking. To find out more about Unity Teachings, visit unity.org. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear their beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. Call today, 816-969-2000. If you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, what can you read that's new and exciting? Try Unity Magazine. It's designed for the seasoned spiritual student with in-depth articles and interviews about spiritual practices and philosophies. Our columnists share their own faith journeys and cover healing, science, and psychology with even a little scripture thrown in. You'll read some classic authors and some new ones. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Find the truth within yourself that heals, reveals, guides, and transforms. Tune in to Reverend Galen McDowell every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms. Take a deep dive into the practical aspects of new thought teaching, starting with forgiveness, spiritual healing, prosperity, and more. Reverend McDowell welcomes some amazing guests, and topics can range from reincarnation to the Bible to science. Big plans to join the show here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Hi, everybody. We're talking today with Gold Star Mom Paula Stevens, talking from her heart about rebuilding a beautiful, thriving life after tragedy. And if you have been listening already, you can tell from Paula's energy that it is possible to find happiness again after the passing of a loved one. And Paula is going to be sharing with us in this last half hour action steps to transform your grief into growth. But we did promise we'd come back. And Paula, you're going to tell us about a, a hurtful email you got from a woman. 
Well, yeah, I think it's worth sort of sharing um, <clears throat> that. Uh, so it was, it's been a few weeks, and I received an email from a mom who had lost a child, and she just immediately lashed out and said, you know, how dare you monetize your loss? How dare you? And she went through kind of a short list of things that in my behaviors or presence, the online presence really bothered her. And I sat on it all day and thought, gosh, do I reply? Do I not reply? And finally, at the end of the day, I thought, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm, I'm going to really directly answer her questions because she asked them. And then sort of allow some space for her feelings to be heard. And, and I did just that. I answered the questions that she had and sort of addressed her concerns around my online presence and, and then also acknowledged the hurts and how painful it is to lose a child and that none of us want this and, and kind of just allowed her to know that she'd been hurt. And I received an email back and it was so kind and it was, it was the real person. It wasn't the, the tantrum-throwing two-year-old grief that we're talking. Yeah. And so that's yeah. a really great example of the personifying it. And, you know, if she sat down it, and looked at her behavior, I think she probably would have said, yeah, that was a little two-year-old tantrum that I threw, wasn't it? And yeah. I'd say, yeah, it kind of was, wasn't it? And then she can, she can kind of say, let me, let me go put that little grief baby to bed for a while. And she was so kind-hearted. And we had this beautiful exchange. And, and you know, I just simply said, you know, no one's here to create more hurt and pain. And it wished her well and, and wished her all, you know, healing and wholeness in her journey. Um, and I think sometimes of everything, we just want to know that we're heard. And we just want to know that people understand that we're hurting. And I think once she felt that, she felt held and heard and hold and all of that, she was much better. So, yeah, just a little yeah. grief temper tantrum story. <laughs> and a shining example of how love heals. So thank you. Mm, so you, yes, you say in your book that, that you discovered after Brandon passed that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's traditional five stages of grief didn't go far enough. So you developed actual action steps. Why don't we dive right into them? You want to start? You want to just quickly say what the five steps are? And then dive into yeah. them? Yeah, of course, yeah. So, yes, I felt like, and I, and I won't go into any of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work. I think, you know, we're familiar with it and um, mm -hmm. sort of the scope of what I'm talking about. But what I found was I, I needed to do things, and I needed to do things that I felt were productive, um, not necessarily goal-driven, productive, meaning... And, and not just I to stay busy. Right, exactly. So it wasn't busyness. It was actually something. And so these five elements, as you talked about in the opening bio, this is these five elements were born from the five-year anniversary of Brandon's death and me sitting down and saying, what is it that has worked for me in five years? Because along the way, I wasn't thinking, what do I need to do next? You know, it wasn't a checklist, but it was a reflection rather of what did I do that worked and, and what did I do that didn't work? Because I did a lot of things wrong. I definitely yeah. went around the block to go in the front door of healing, right? I did not mm -hmm. walk right up into the healing door. I was like, oh, let's wander around for a while. And I did a lot of that, but I also could reflect on what worked. And so, you know, my five elements, you know, the, the first one I talk about 
which is so easy for me because my background is health and wellness, was how health and wellness and self-care impact our healing. And it isn't separate. Our physical body is as ingrained in our grief process as our emotional state and our spiritual state. You cannot separate them anymore then you can separate the surface of a pond from air or the pond. It's, it is that, that line of demarcation between the surface of the pond and what lies above and below is connected through the physical body. And then the second element was letting go of limiting beliefs. And we all have limiting beliefs. We had them before our loved one died, and we continue to embrace and engage in some of those after. And some of those don't help us heal. And some of those that's a letting go. Like those are sometimes the things that keep us stuck. And then the third element was around self-compassion and loving ourselves and loving others and what that looks like. Um, because I think that's, we get a little bit lost in that and we either end up wanting to be the victim, which is not an act of self-love and it's not an act of compassion. Um, it's just re-identifying ourselves as somebody who isn't really very high functioning necessarily. And so we step into that. And then the next element, the fourth one was creating connections that heal. And I found that there was some behaviors that I engaged in that were really productive and some that weren't so productive. And, um, you know, some of those transformed over time and they continue to transform. Like right now I'm actually really shifting my connections and where I'm finding um, healing in the people that I'm surrounding myself with. So it's something that continues to evolve. And then the last element was gratitude. And that was one of the elements that I probably grappled with the most was to say, really, my child died and you want me to be grateful for that? Well, it's not that we're being grateful directly for that, but that we're cultivating a mindset of gratitude and I'll talk more in depth about all of them, but um, it is an essential element. As counterproductive as that sounds, it is gratitude is an essential element. Awesome. I love that, my, that how, you, how you came up with these, right? What really worked and what didn't work. So I'm just, I want you to flow with this, Paula, and just intuitively sense okay. what everybody needs to hear most from those five elements. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, well, let's let's start with the the concept of wellness and self care, because you know, and I I think I open with, um, and I'll, I'm going to actually get my own book out here and um, page through it with you, um, because I think I refer to a quote at the beginning of the chapter on wellness and self care by Ram Dass, and Ram Dass is who is the author of the book Be Here Now from the 70s. And so he's this like old hippie guy, but incredibly wise, incredibly intuitive, and one of my favorite, favorite people. And so I start this by quoting him and saying, um, the quote says, the body is a temple of the soul, the temple of your spirit, the vehicle for you to become one with God. Honor it take care of it. And I think we live in a culture that identifies our body as an external source of um, uh, appreciation or 
you know, that we have to look a certain way or be a certain way or act a certain way in terms of what activities we're doing or how we're using our physical body. And culturally, we tend to look at exercise as this thing that we do completely different, almost like a job or a vocation. Mm -hmm. And the truth is how our physical body is and how we treat it is a reflection of our self-respect in some, in some ways. And it's also a way of how we're integrating our wholeness. And so when I think of wellness and self-care as it pertains to healing and growth, I'm not talking about a six pack of abs or, you know, tight butt or, you know, whatever that looks like or long hair or whatever. I'm saying, are you treating your body as Ram Dass says, as the temple of your soul? And, and in that way, we have this opportunity to use our body to help process our grief. And the example that I give in the book, and it's a really, I think, a tangible one for us, is I talk about the physical body being, we think of the physical body as this big, um, very grossly manifested cement mixer truck, okay? And, <laughs> and we all know what a cement mixer truck looks like, right? It's this great big thing. It's very visible, and um, it has this big tank on the back that rolls around, right? And the, the tank is always in motion. Mm-hmm. And in the back of that tank is our cement that's getting rolled around. And the cement in the tank, for us as humans, is everything that's getting put in there. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, you know, and it's getting churned around in there in the tank. And in our life, sometimes we need to pour some of that out and work with it. And using our physical body, moving the physical self, is the way that we keep that, those contents churning around and we can make it malleable or we keep it malleable. So if I want to personify my grief, if I want to sit down with grief and say, let's have a real heart-to-heart talk to your grief. But if I've just sat there and done nothing and I've sat with, let's say, the concept time heals all wounds, well, I'm going to sit here until time does its job. If I just sit and wait for time to heal me, my cement turns to concrete. Huh. And then concrete is sure a lot harder to work with. And concrete shows up in our physical life as hypertension, chronic disease, heart disease, cancer, um, autoimmune disease. There's a long, long list that I could go in as a physiologist and talk about. That's the concrete. And so at some point we have to say, you know, let's, let's keep moving. And, and then in this movement, grief becomes and maintains its malleable substance, right? And it's, it's something that we can work with. And so then I can, I can pour my grief out and I can say, okay, today, this is what it looks like. And I can work with it and I can mold it and I can turn it into anything I want. I can turn it into a beautiful monument. I can make it into whatever I want. Now, Paula, you, you used the great metaphor with the cement mixer, but you're literally saying, get out there and move. What does that physiologically do to transform the grief? Well, let me, yes. <laughs> so that's a great question. So, and I'm make, let me start from saying something really simple. I'm Good. not talking about going out and running a marathon. I'm saying right now in this moment, take a deep breath. 
And so, you know, you and I will do this together and all the listeners can do it. Just take a really deep inhale and a long, slow exhale. And then you do that three or four more times. That's movement. (laughs) The breath is the simplest movement that we forget to do in our grief. We let grief live up in our collarbones and we only breathe really shallow. And when we do that, to answer your question physiologically, when we are so in, driven by our grief and our grief is driving all of our conscious thoughts and we're breathing up in our collarbone area and we're just this really shallow breathing, it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system increases heart rate, increases blood pressure, um, diverts blood away from the gastric um, juices and the visceral organs, and it puts us in fight or flight. And so we become chronically stressed, increases cortisol, increases all the hormones that have to do with fight or flight. Because what we've done is we've told the body, oh my gosh, something bad is imminent. And then the body responds in fight or flight. But when we move the body, yes, heart rate goes up. Yes, blood pressure goes up. But when we breathe and we breathe down deep into our belly like that, which as we exercise, the breath automatically becomes deeper, the parasympathetic system is stimulated. And in the parasympathetic system, heart rate goes down, blood pressure goes down, blood returns to the visceral organs, mental clarity goes up, decision-making is clearer, and all of these amazing things happen. Whereas when we live in that fight or flight we're always on edge. We're always like waiting for the bad thing to happen. And so to speak to your what happens, when we move the body, we encourage a state of calm, mindfulness, right? And so I'm not talking about, like I said, I'm not saying go run a marathon, but I am saying go move your body. If it's one breath at a time, take a big breath, open mouth, let it go. Deep breath into your belly. Let that breath sink beyond the the collarbones, beyond the ribs, all the way down to the low belly. Let that breath be deep and heavy and low. And let the shoulders soften. And the oh, more you can hear the yoga more... teacher in you, Paula. <laughs> ah, yes, right? Here now, you know, this is, Here's if it. I could just tell everybody, this is what I loved about your book. It's, you spent a good deal of time on this first action element, and yet it was just right. It was just enough. You didn't go too deep, but you left us wanting more. And and it, it's just brilliant the way you've written this. And I'm looking at the clock ticking down, and I want more of this, but I also want more of your elements <laughs> Yes. So yes. grab another so one. Keep, what's what's something that everybody needs to hear? Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I think um, let's, let's talk about limiting beliefs, okay? Because um, mm-hmm. I think that's one that when people are feeling stuck, limiting beliefs are often that sticking point because it's, it's in that thinking that, keeps us where we are because we're hanging on to a belief or a mindset. Another way of thinking of a limiting belief is a mindset or an opinion. And well, my guides are twitching my lip like crazy telling me, tell her about that, that 
example you put in the book about when you went out to the movies and you didn't think you were allowed to be happy. That was a limiting belief. Oh Your son had passed. Right? How can you be happy? Oh my gosh. Yes. And so one of the limiting beliefs that I came across early in my, glee, in my grief, and I, I totally bought into it, was once you've lost a child, you will never be happy again. It's, it's kind of like you had this happiness card and the universe came and grabbed it up and said, no more happiness for you. You, you lost your happiness card. And so, yeah, um, I think the, the story I share, and I'll be really brief, is that I went to the movies and we went, it was a comedy, and I went with my very best friend and her husband. And I cried through the whole movie. And it wasn't because the movie wasn't funny. It was because I felt so guilty and full of shame that there I was thinking I had the right to go and laugh. Like, well, what must Brandon think of me? The mom who goes to movies and laughs and has a good time and gets on with her life. And, you know, now I look at that and, and I, I think how healing laughter is and how wonderful laughter is in a way of connecting ourselves to our human experience. And yes, there is absolutely sadness, but we don't lose our happiness card. And so if, you know, somebody out there is listening and thinking, yeah, I can understand that. I feel like I'm not allowed to have joy. I feel like I'm not allowed to be happy. And I also had that experience when we went on a family vacation and we went on a cruise. Um, and I remember standing at the back of the boat just bawling because I wanted so badly for Brandon to have that experience with me. And I wanted to share that experience with him. And I just felt so wrong for doing something that felt so indulgent. But you talk in the book about finding that balance, that it's okay to experience both sides of your emotions. Yes, and how difficult it is to stand there at the back of the boat bawling because you're so incredibly unhappy and sad and wanting your child there and having other children and my mom was there and really wanting to have that experience and not take it away from them and have it be a memory because you know, I don't know how long I have my mom. I don't even know how long I have my other kids for or how, how long they have me for. And so to delicately hold both of those, yes, I'm allowed to be sad. Yes, I'm allowed to be happy. Yes, I'm allowed both of those and all of those in the same moment. And how difficult that is. And I think anyone who's lost a loved one or any, um, any traumatic loss, I mean, I would say even you know, people who've been divorced and they're letting go of the dreams of being a married couple, couple into old age, whatever the loss and the trauma is, to sit with all of it and say, I'm allowed all of this and I'm still allowed happiness. So, yeah. So um, one limiting belief is definitely no more happiness. And then the next one that I think is really important is hanging on to the, light, or the limiting belief that we're still living in our should-be life. So our life should be like this, or me standing at the back of the boat and saying, Brandon should be here. Should he? But that's not reality. Yeah. You know, what, what's real? What's happening right now? Well, Brandon's not here. So I guess he shouldn't be then because that's what's real. And, um, What's interesting, this weekend, this past weekend, I was at um, the Colorado Gold Star Family Conference. And I have some really wonderful friends there, um, a Navajo couple, so a Native American couple, and they lost their son 
uh, actually he was killed in action in friendly fire in Iraq in 2006. And we got into a conversation around Navajo beliefs and Christian beliefs around death. And the woman, um, she's this wonderful, beautiful soul, and her ancestors and her lineage is all of medicine men. And she said, our belief is as soon as that child is conceived, in that moment of conception, of coming into the world, there is also an ending already determined. And no matter what happens in time, place, circumstance, when that moment arrives, that soul will cease to exist in this human form. And she said she heard that after their son died, they really questioned this. And, and it was really hard for them. And, um, but she said over and over again, they were told by numerous medicine men and even the Catholic priest they talked to. So they went and consulted a Catholic priest. And he basically said the same thing, that, you know, how it is, is how it should be. And when we question that, we're really questioning our, our belief that the universe knows what it's doing. And I, I believe the universe does know what it's doing. <laughs> and you know, we all have varying, you know, interpretations of what the universe is doing. But I believe that, you know, in this should be. So when we sit there and we say it should be, that's really fantasizing. Because we only fantasize the should be that are good, right? Like I say, Brandon should be here. Well, you know, I don't know what alternative realities could have been. But our should-be's are always the, the best version, right? The best right. version of what should be. We never think of alternatives that could have been more catastrophic or differently catastrophic. So, yes, getting rid of, like, should-be thinking. And it's not to say, you know, and really what we're saying there is, you know, Brandon should be here. What I'm saying is I miss Brandon. I miss his presence. You know, it's not that he should be there. That's not reality. But what am I really saying the essence is, I really wish he was here. And that's okay. Right? Yeah. It's our thoughts that cause the suffering. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes, absolutely. It is absolutely our own thinking that creates suffering and our own attachment to the way things should be mm -hmm. that get us in trouble. Well, we need um, about six more hours at least to talk about your yes. action steps. In, in lacking that, I'm just going to encourage everyone to read Paula's book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's From well, Grief to Growth. But your last chapter talks about finding your empowered purpose. And I understand that some you've had some things open up in your life lately. While we bring this to a close, yeah. do you want to share that with us? Yeah. Um... Yes, I would love to share what sort of has opened up in my empowered purpose. And I think um, I'll kind of close with another quote from the book. And at the beginning of the chapter that says, finding your empowered purpose, it's another Ram Dass quote. And it says, the art of life is to stay wide open and be vulnerable, yet at the same time to sit with the mystery and the awe and the unbearable pain to just be with all of it. And I think that's so beautiful because when we can be open and vulnerable, it is amazing the things that unfold and come into our world. So, you know, after Brandon died, 
you know, I, like I said, I really struggled with what my purpose was and, and what was happening and if I was supposed to be happy or if I wasn't and all of those things. And I've really been blessed that Brandon has been such a vehicle for the book and, you know, all the things that have come through me because of Brandon. I really feel like I'm very humbled, very, very humbled to do any of this work and believe that it is Brandon's life legacy, not necessarily mine, <laughs> that this yeah. was his life's purpose is to bring this work into the world. It's not what I was here for, but it was what he's here for and, and, and doing it through me. And what's really beautiful that's evolved in staying fully open to the experiences in the last year. You have just have 30 seconds, look- Paula. Sorry. Oh, you're kidding me. Okay. No, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> to lean into what might be unbelievable in terms of what you're capable of. So those things that seem unbelievable, when you hear yourself say, I could never do that, hold that thought and write it down somewhere because you might find yourself doing that. So it sounds like you have some exciting things coming ahead. Y'all are going to just have to read the book to find out how to find greater purpose from what seems like tragedy. Paula, it's been a pleasure sharing with you. I wish we had more time, but Crazy Good Grief is her website. Please check out Paula's work and take action. I love action is what heals our wounds. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.